The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I uh, read an interview this week with the frontman of one of the worst, most popular bands of the late 90s. And if you really want to know what I consider one of the worst, you can ask me afterwards. I won't tell you who it was. He said that while they were recording a particular album that would go on to be something like triple platinum, they spent an estimated $60,000 on Jack Daniels. I dare say if you were to go back and listen to this album, you could pick up right away it was a bunch of drunken idiots that made this music. Multnomah County reports that an average of 19% of adults that live here binge drink regularly, like once a week. Binge drinking is having more than four to five drinks in a particular session. And if you can possibly believe it, we are among the lowest in the country of percentage of the population that binge drinks. The Dos Equi slogan, right, of the boringest, most interesting man in the world, stay thirsty, my friends, it seems to sum up our existential treadmill, doesn't it? We are a people who are very, very thirsty. And the people around us in our city are very thirsty. And as St. Paul so aptly tells us, we need to live as wise, not as unwise, because we live in times where people make terrible music and spend $60,000 on liquor. Now, the early church fathers were like the Pablo Escobars of trafficking in paradox. Almost everything they said makes you sort of scratch your head, and it seems like it can't really fit together. And the more you ponder it, the more you start to realize that they're getting at these antinomies, these, these things that are so contradictory seemingly and yet open up new vistas of understanding. And one of the paradoxes they talked a great deal about is the sober inebriation of the church. St. Ambrose said in talking about the Eucharistic wine, he says, whenever you drink it, you receive the remission of sins and you become inebriated in spirit. He who is drunk with wine wavers and staggers, but he who is inebriated in the Spirit is rooted in Christ. 
What wonderful drunkenness which effects sobriety of spirit. It's a paradox. What wonderful drunkenness which effects sobriety of spirit. I would suggest to you that this paradox of sober inebriation ties together our epistle reading and our gospel reading this morning. I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes understanding what Christ is doing in this section of the gospel according to St. John before turning our attention to, if I could mix metaphors here, the polyphonic images that Scripture and the teachings of the church use to describe how Christ nourishes his people. There are these word pictures that keep cropping up over and over again in Scripture, and they sort of play into one another and fold in almost like a big mosaic. So what's happening here in John 6? Jesus has been in a protracted discussion with the people. He has miraculously fed a crowd of thousands with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And John tells us, very important little detail, that it was near Passover. All of these things are like hyperlinks, right? If you were immersed in the scriptures and in the culture of the church, then you would understand. You could press on these little things. Just how you push hard on your phone, right? And a new screen pops up. Passover. It's the feast when God's people ate unleavened bread to remind them of their escape from Egypt. When the firstborn were struck down, but those who had the blood of the lamb on the lintel were spared. And as Jesus is talking with the crowds of people about food and his identity and signs that could confirm his claims to be the Son of God, another larger-than-life image comes from the Old Testament into play. Manna. The bread that miraculously rained down each morning as the Israelites were wandering in the desert. And if you follow the pattern of discussion in John 6, you realize that with each thing Jesus says, the crowd grows in their frustration and even repulsion. And yet in every reply, Jesus just doubles down, becoming more and more explicit in his meaning. So he tells them that he is the bread that came down from heaven, and that whoever comes to him will never be hungry, and whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. And they scoff. And they complain, and they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Didn't he grow up just around the corner? What is he talking about? Going on saying that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. Jesus responds, don't complain among yourselves. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The crowd scoffs again. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus responds with what we heard at the beginning of our gospel texts. And it's a classic intro of Jesus in the Gospels. It says, verily, verily, sometimes translated truly, truly, which is sort of old-timey speak for listen. This will be on the exam. <laughs> right? Did you ever have teachers say that? Listen. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This statement is like a verbal version of Christ's transfiguration. It's a bright cloud that is at once blindingly clear and confoundingly cloudy. 
It is a mystery that we will never plumb the depths of, and it is also a concrete reality that we can hold in our hand and taste in our mouth. For those of us that came to Christ in the more fideistic permutations of Protestantism, this statement is even more troubling than its cannibalistic overtones, right? Salvation? Eternal life? Isn't that supposed to be based on what happens between our ears? Aren't we supposed to tick off all the right mental boxes of Jesus' divinity, humanity, sacrificial death on our sinful, broken behalf, and then that's it, right? Now let's assume for a moment that here in John 6, Jesus is at some level referring to the Eucharistic feast because, you know, he is. What are we to make of salvation by grace through faith? We've talked about this in a variety of ways before, especially concerning the sacrament of baptism. We don't have time to go too deeply into it, but there is a false dichotomy that creeps into our imaginations that somehow all Jesus is after is an internal response that doesn't materialize into anything. But when we take his image from John 3 of rebirth or birth from above through water and spirit, we understand that to be born into God's kingdom requires nothing less than the water of baptism, but also so much more because it is an immersion into the life of the Spirit that entails a lifetime of faith and repentance, a constant response to the divine life. But if you follow that figure, that image of being a newborn in Christ, think of it, you, you parents. When you brought your child home from the hospital, did you just set them there in the kitchen and say, have at it? Ta-da! You were born! Now you're alive. You're all set. No. You have to nourish them. You feed them. Very often it is the mother who nourishes her child with her own body. And here's where these, again, these polyphonic, these 3D images of the church all come colliding because the church is often referred to as our mother. But she's also the mystical body of Christ on earth. And it is Christ who nourishes us through his body which on earth is now mystically the church. So what? Salvation require something of us? Is it not really just grace? Well, again, follow the image. Did your child assist in her own birth? Did he provide food for himself or work and beg sustenance from you to gain life? No. These things were bestowed and they were received. Salvation is by grace, through faith. And thanks be to God, it is not left in some disembodied ether. We were created as both breath and dust, spirit and matter, and Christ comes to us as we are in human flesh and then gives us physical food for our spiritual sustenance, for the salvation of our souls and bodies. And in faith, we feed on him. Salvation is absolutely a matter of grace through faith, 100%. And it is in faith that we approach and feed on Christ. It's important to recognize here, I think, that there is a tendency 
in every generation to out-spiritualize Jesus. Jesus, who uses spit and mud to heal a blind man. Jesus, who eats fish on a beach with his disciples. Jesus, who reaches out and touches the body of a dead girl to bring her back to life. Jesus, who talks about money almost constantly as a true window into our desires. Jesus, who turns water into wine at a wedding feast. Jesus, who takes bread and after giving thanks, he breaks it and gives it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. It turns out if you want to be with Jesus, you've got to get down into the dirt where he lives. You can't out-spiritualize Jesus. Even in this text, I mean, the reaction of the crowd is 100% correct. Ugh, what? The disciples even come to Jesus after our text is over, and they say, dude, this is a hard saying. In this text, the word that Jesus uses for eat in reference to his own flesh is a very animalistic word. It actually has the connotation of the audible chewing noise that an animal makes as it is feasting on a carcass. He, he could have chosen other words, cleaner words, nicer words. He doesn't. There's a physicality here that is absolutely unavoidable. As it's been noted by many before, you are what you eat. And Christ tells us, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, and those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I abide in them. This is one of the reasons that the expectation of the church is for the baptized to be in the liturgy every week unless reasonably prevented. It's not that it's another rule to follow. It's not about gaining standing before God or being made holy by doing certain things. It is about having the fullness of life that Christ offers us. How are you going to live your life in Christ without the true food that is his body? Perhaps more disturbingly, if you can come and go as you feel like it, what are you ingesting that you have convinced yourself is true food? Have you been wasting away, perhaps, not even realizing it? It is in the Eucharist that Christ nourishes his people because he comes to us in his word and at his table. And the more that we feast on him here, the more our spiritual taste buds will come alive to us and to his nourishing presence. And the more that we will become like him, it is here in this feast that we become like what the doctors of the church call Sequela Christi, a sequel of Christ. Not to be just another version of him, but to be assimilated into Christ and attain our union with him. And this is where another of those images emerges and overlaps with Christ being the bread of heaven, because he keeps saying here over and over, those who feed on me abide in me and I abide in them. This is the image of union and mutual indwelling that is the image of a wedding. It's a wedding banquet. John's Gospel, as you no doubt know, has a series of signs that Jesus performs. 
as a way of revealing his identity and mission to the world. The first of those signs is the changing of water into an incredible vintage of wine at a wedding feast at the suggestion of his mother. This sign reveals to us that in Christ's arrival, there is new wine on offer that requires new wineskins. And all of this is in the context of a celebratory wedding feast, which means that the Eucharistic work that we are doing together here in the gathered liturgy and out there in what theologians call the liturgy outside the liturgy, this is the process by which we become those new wineskins. The Holy Spirit is crafting us into those vessels that are able to take in the new wine of Christ's joy. The gathered liturgy is, as Father Alexander Schmemann says, before everything else, the joyous gathering of those who are to meet the risen Lord and enter with him into the bridal chamber. It is this bridal or nuptial joy that the fathers refer to when talking about the sober inebriation. They pull it from the Song of Songs. As the lover and the beloved feast in love and sing to one another, they say, eat, O friends, and drink, and be inebriated, my dearly beloved. And what the fathers hear there is the voice of Christ himself calling us to come and drink and be inebriated in the Spirit as we feast on him. A wedding feast is about light and beauty and joy. It is about richness and generosity, not austerity and moralism and self-justification. And I would suggest to you that it is exactly here that our witness to the world is to be made. As the forest fire smoke has descended on Portland again, it's been a poignant reminder of the existential smog of our world that we are breathing in and out all the time. We often fail to notice it directly, but then there's the stinging eyes or the dry throat and runny nose that come from being in this system of constant self-justification, comparison, jealousy, greed, lust, self-promotion. They are leaving us miserable and without true freedom. That's not what's on display at a wedding. At a wedding, we are surrounded by joy. A few months ago, some dear friends of ours got married, and our daughters were the flower girls, and they had these beautiful, ornate dresses, and our girls loved to get dressed up. So they were so excited to wear their pretty wedding dresses. And I have pictures of my youngest at the reception in this incredible dress with an ice cream sandwich the size of her face, and she's using her dress as this enormous napkin, and it's just everywhere. And then a few minutes later, she's dancing her heart out with the bride. To be honest, I don't even know if she wiped her hands. It's probably all over the bride's dress now, too. This is an image of Christian witness. Finley wasn't self-conscious. She was overwhelmed by the beauty and the joy and the freedom of that moment. As Schmemann says elsewhere, the church is the joy of recovered childhood. It's that free, unconditioned, and disinterested joy which alone is capable of transforming the world. 
In our adult, serious piety, we ask for definitions and justifications, and they are rooted in fear. But we know that he that fears is not made perfect in love. He says, as long as Christians will love the kingdom of God and not only discuss it, they will represent it and signify it in art and beauty. And the celebrant of the sacrament of joy will appear in a beautiful chasuble because he is vested in the glory of the kingdom because even in the form of man, God appears in glory. In the Eucharist, he says, we are standing in the very presence of Christ. And like Moses before God, we are to be covered with his glory. Yes, the beauty of our preparation for the Eucharist has no practical use. But Romano Guardini has spoken wisely of this useless beauty when of the liturgy he says, it is in the highest sense the life of a child in which everything is picture, melody, and song. Such is the wonderful fact which the liturgy, the place in which we feast on Christ, demonstrates. It unites act and reality in a supernatural childhood before God. Friends, in a moment, I welcome you to come as little children come unto Christ, not self-conscious, not even self-aware, just overwhelmed by the beauty and joy of his wedding banquet table, and would you come and taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.